There's an Irish poet that I'm beginning to really love. His poetry, his name is Michal O'Shiel, which if you know the Irish language, it has so many more letters in it than it sounds like. (laughs) One of his books of poetry is called Love Life. And it's about his 36-year-long marriage with his wife. Her name is Brid, which is, I think, short for Bridget. It, it kind of it goes through these four movements. From, from the early erotic obsession, through all the dramas of wooing and courting, into that stage of life of quarreling and hurt that comes up with just the ordinary demands that we face in living this life. And as time goes by, what you see in these poems of O'Shiel is you see this the story of this young love that's blossoming and opening into an intimacy and a depth of commitment that is really quite astonishing. You end up seeing the kind of slow transformation of life together between two people who are committed to each other. At the core of all these poems is this This motif, this idea, this theme that just keeps coming up over and over. And it's O'Shiel's amazement at the mystery of his wife. It it, it reminds me of this song by U2, which has become, I think, my favorite U2 song, about the mysterious distance between a man and a woman. The longer I'm married, the more I sense this. The closer I get to Janelle, the more I see there's a mystery to her that I can never contain. There's one of his poems. He's talking about his wife. He says, I glance at you. There's so much unexplained. Plays of light keep provoking my infinity. Already something in your presence overflows me. A gleam of a face refusing to be contained. How little I know of you again and again. So soon astray in this unknowable terrain. 21 years and I'm journeying to discover only what your face reveals. Stranger and lover. Now spending this week with Psalm 63, our passage of scripture for this morning. David's astonishing prayer of love for the father. It's been for me like reading O'Shiel's poetry. It's been like looking in at this intimate relationship that David has. And so this morning, what I want to do, and to be honest, this poem is even like the love I'm speaking of. (laughs) I've spent years with this poem. I've known this prayer since my childhood. And even still this week, I was amazed at how much I discovered was beyond me. At these moments this week in my own study and reflection and meditation where I felt like I had just cracked open a door into a wondrous depth that I could never reach the bottom of. So what I want to do this morning, because I'm totally intimidated by this passage, this passage of Scripture, is I just want to share with you three glimpses that have captured my heart this week as I reflect on David's relationship with God. Let's start in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Now what we see here is... David's incredible thirst for God. He's thirsty for God. For David, it's it's an ache. It's a need. And the only solution to this ache and this need is the presence of God. Is seeing God. So what does he do? He goes to the temple. That's verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And and having seen God, having seen God's presence, what does he do? Look what it says in verse 3. He makes the most astonishing statement. Your love, your steadfast love is better than life itself. This word here for love, it's hesed. It's a word that is impossible to translate into English. It's originally written in Hebrew. The best translation I know of it, I've told you this before, is the book of Hosea. It's this deep commitment that keeps loving no matter what. It's like the waves crashing on the ocean that nothing can stop. It just keeps coming. I grew up right outside of Galveston, Texas. If I go to Galveston today, you know what? The waves are doing the same thing they were doing when I went there as a 12-year-old. They keep coming. And that's Hesed. That is the love of God. And David says, that love that you have for me, God, it is better than life. God's never-ending, compassionate, tender devotion to David. David says, this is more valuable to me than my own life is valuable to me. Do you see how David reached for the thing that is more valuable than anything else and says, I would rather your unfailing love than my own life. Now look, this is a moment in David's prayer, that line, verse 3, is a moment of ecstatic adoration. It's a moment in his prayer life of pure adoration where God's love for David has become enrapturous to him. So here we see one glimpse that has captured me this week is the passion of David's love for God. It's astonishing. He has an astonishing passion for God. That's the first glimpse. Look with me at the next section of the psalm, verses 5 through 8. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That last verse. Saw something this week in that last phrase that I haven't seen in in 20 years or more of read 30 years of reading this passage. My soul clings to you. Hold your finger there and turn all the way back to the passage that Alan read to us, Genesis chapter 2. 
Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now this means many things. But it it means among many things the intimate moment when a husband and wife turn to one another in the most secret and private of ways. That word for hold fast, in my translation, I think in Allen's it was unite. It is the same word in Hebrew that David uses for cling. When David is trying to capture the intimacy of his love for the Father, he reaches into the very first description of a love between a man and a woman, when they are being completely intimate with one another. And he says, the way that man and woman hold one another is how my soul holds you, God. And then the next phrase, and your right hand upholds me. This is an erotic image. This is a husband and wife. So here's the second glimpse for me, for David's relationship with God. The first, the depth of passion, this, the depth of intimacy. Without being crass, but with absolutely being erotic, David is saying, this is my soul's love for you, God. It's astonishing. This is an intimate love. Look at verses 9 through 11, the last section of the, po- of the prayer, for one final glimpse. Here, all of a sudden, everything changes, and it feels like... David must have got up from his prayer and gone on about something else and then come back and picked up the pen and forgotten where he was. Look what the next phrase is. But those who seek to destroy my life, right? He goes from this erotic imagery to, yeah, there's some people trying to kill me. (laughs) They shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. And there's there's so much here. I mean, there's so much in the prayer. It's interesting the way mouths play out, right? His enemies will be in the mouths of jackals, but in his his mouth will be the praise of God. His enemies' mouth will be stopped, but his lips will never stop. I mean, there's incredible play going on in these different stanzas. But here's what I want you to see. Here, what astonishes me about David's relationship with God. It's not the passion. It's not the intimacy. It's the strength of it. You see, David's prayer of intimate, passionate love is taking place while he's on the run. He's hiding in the wilderness from a king and an army about to kill him. And it's in that life-threatening, filled with anxiety, completely overwhelming situation that he finds the solitude of his own self enraptured with the love of God. I'm reading this uh, book that Barbara turned me on to, the second one. I'm on the second novel, C.J. Sansom. It's a series of novels about the smartest hunchback lawyer in medieval England, which is hilarious. And there's this phrase that I read this week and it made me think of this poem where he talks about a rock much battered 
When I look at David's love, it's to me like a jetty in Galveston, much battered with the waves, but immoved, standing there. Here is a love much battered, a strong love, a love that is standing in the middle. David is quite literally about to die. So when he says your steadfast love to me is better than life, he was not waxing poetical. He was facing his own imminent death. And all he can do is say, you know what? Even if it happens, there is something better. It's your love for me, oh God. Now this week, the more I've read and meditated on this prayer of David, the more I've been astonished. At his relationship with God. Each week. In this series on prayer. We've been encouraging you. To set aside time daily. And to set a place. Where every day. You get alone with God. In prayer. And in scripture. Different types of prayers each week. Last week it was prayers of confession. The week before prayer, or the time before that, prayers of asking God for help and prayers of praise. But this week we face a real challenge. I mean, if your week ahead is anything like mine has been sitting with this, how in the world do we take possession of such an astonishing prayer? Who among us is equal? Who among us can pray and be this? I mean, the real issue, remember the very first sermon on the prayers? It's not about learning how to pray. It's about becoming a type of person, right? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In order to move into the garden of the Psalms, it's, it's really about who you are. How can we become the kind of people who can really pray this? How do we learn to pray like David to to be this passionate, this intimate, and this strong in our love for God? How can we move this prayer into the house of our own souls? That's the challenge our church faces this week. And let me give you two suggestions for the journey ahead. Number one, we need to continue The pattern we've developed. And what I mean, look at it this way. When we look at Jesus' prayer life in the Gospels, we see that Jesus took part in regular synagogue and temple worship. Jesus was an observant Jew. And his prayer life with God followed the pattern that was set of weekly worship and a rhythm of his days. Most likely, it appears to us from the gospel that Jesus, like all of the Jews of his time, was stopping seven times a day in a set prayer, a series of set, memorized prayers. Very much like Islam does, except different content, obviously. But what I'm saying is, we need to if we want to become this type of person that David was if you if we are to experience this depth of our praying 
the first thing we've got to do is commit ourselves to regular, habitual, to a rhythm of prayer. I can't tell you how important a daily time with God has been to my own life. From the time I I was taught how to read, my parents taught me that every day I needed to read the Bible and pray. And some of my earliest memories are me getting alone every day to read the Bible at whatever level I could and to pray. And I commend this to you. What I've been encouraging you to do for this whole series, that you must develop the habit of a daily set-aside time, set-aside place of prayer. And, and what, what happens in this is that it shapes our life. Sometimes the daily regular rhythm, when you go to meet God in the morning and the evening, sometimes this opens up into astonishing experiences with God. But typically it doesn't. Typically a daily time with God is far more ordinary than extraordinary. And what happens in these moments is that it's shaping our souls at the deep and unconscious level. It's shaping the layers of ourself where the sediment of the past is deposited. That, that, that we pull up for nourishment to develop our instincts and our intuitions and our reactions. Every day, listen, children, every day, teenagers, adults, all of us, you need to meet with God in scripture and prayer. And this, this time with God does not depend on how you feel. You just do it. Because the daily moments with God, these are a long-term Affair. This is a long-term formative thing. And you need to take it on and trust from others that it will be worthwhile in a few years if you persevere. But even the good routine of a daily time alone with God is not enough to become the kind of person we see David is here. In fact, as we, work, as we look at Jesus' own pattern of praying... We see in the Gospels, not only is Jesus just doing the daily rhythm of Jewish spirituality, of set hour prayer. Not only is he doing that, but throughout the Gospels, we get these glimpses into Jesus' secret life of prayer. Where he's stealing away to spend whole nights in prayer. Where he's getting up extra early so that he can have more time in prayer than his normal day affords. Where he's going away with a few close friends to spend a retreat in prayer. Where he's going alone for 40 days into the wilderness to pray by himself. Now look, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see both. You see the ordinary rhythm and there is this vital lesson to be learned. At the heart of Jesus' relationship with the Father is his recognition that God is so big and so magnificent and so available that we need both the ordinary routines of prayer and we need opportunities for something far more than the ordinary. 
What I'm saying is that we live in a culture of busyness. And in our life, it is easy for the most committed of Christians to give God a slot in their day. And then once the prayer time is up to go on to the next thing, that is on your schedule. Because you have to do that. You have to slot in time for God. And then you know what you've got to do? You've got to be at work at 7 or 8 or whenever your work day starts. You've got to leave that and go on about with your duties. We have schedules to keep. Most of us cannot linger with God in our daily prayer life. Some of us, I have far more opportunity to do that than you. There's a sense in which my job demands that of me. But most people do not have that kind of rhythm. You know who doesn't have it at all? The nursing mother. She's lucky if she can even set aside time to pray. Most of us can't do this endless prayer time whenever we want to. So from time to time, be like Jesus. Pull aside. From time to time when we go to pray, it is a good idea to, go, to allow God as much time as God wants. Now, you can't do this all the time. In fact, the Gospels indicate to us that Jesus didn't do this all the time. He lived a very busy life. But there were times when he would pull aside and just give God as much time as God wanted. I mean, think about this. It's easy for us to discover that we're treating God less generously than we treat our close friends. You know that um, Wednesday night was uh, Essentials. So after Essentials, most of the Essentials group, it's over at 8.15, stuck around for an hour or more. And then there was another big group that stuck around until 11. And then there were two, Amelie and Jeremy, that stuck around until 1. And it was wonderful. I mean, when, there was a time when Amelie and Jeremy were in essentials and we were doing marriage counseling. And twice a week we were getting to eat dinner with them and just invest in the friendship. And it's been so long. So you know what we all did? We all just took as long as we wanted. Paid for it for a few days, absolutely. The, ne- the next day on Thursday, I, I, I was useless. And it was worth it. Because that's what friendships are. And you know what? Some of you have done this with your child. Friday night, we had a date with some other friends. that We were going to go to their house and watch the Olympics and enjoy time with them. We didn't go. You know why? Because, because Shelby was not well. And all night long, Janelle was getting up with Shelby. Wrecked her for the next few days. And it was worth it. We do this with our friends. We do this with our children. We do this sometimes at work with customers, for goodness sake. Because we know that if we put a stop to some things, we miss what's vital. Why don't we do this with God? Why don't we, on occasion, wreck our week? And just give God as long as He wants. This this could mean clearing a day in your schedule and you start out in prayer. And you just go on until God is done with you. No, for some of us, most likely, you can't afford to do that. So you know what for you it's going to be? It's going to start in the evening. And you're just going to go. We do this for parties. We do this. Janelle and I did it for Humley and Jeremy. We can do it for the Lord. 
open-ended times of prayer. They give us a chance to do something that we can't do in our daily devotional life. And if you don't have these times interspersed in your life, you will never get to where David was. Now, there, when you do an open-ended time of prayer, you have opportunity to do all sorts of things. You can savor a name of God and then move on to another name of God and then move on to another name of God. You can maybe take the last couple of years of your life and just linger over them, going through them and looking for opportunities to say thank you to God for something he's done. Looking for the moments of sin and confessing and repenting to God. You might take a book in the Bible. There was a time in my life where I had to decide if I was going to go to this church that had asked me to be a minister at it or not. So I took this whole day and I just read through 1 Corinthians over and over and over. My dad always tells me, Aubrey, when you need to hear from God, you got to get in the Word. Just get in Scripture. That's the garden where Christ meets us. Just start reading and see where it takes you. Some of you, for an open-ended time of prayer, just get a journal and a pen and start journaling your prayers. Maybe you've got a complex situation or decision you need to just work through with the Lord just like you do with good friends. Talking about it, throwing it out there, looking at all the options. Maybe you can take a piece of art or a series of pieces of art and allow them to be like a guide to to lead you into adoration of the Father. You can take your extended family and pray person by person through the whole family. You could, Students, if you've got a class at school, you can take your classmates, you can make a list of all your friends, everybody you know, and just spend an extravagant amount of time with no end on it, just going through your friends. You can do that for our church, your church family. I mean, this can look in all sorts of ways. There can be conversation. There can be singing and shouting or silence. And it doesn't matter if your mind drops off and wanders, go with it. And when you reach the end of your rabbit trail of losing focusness and attention, because you've got an open-ended time slot, just come on back. doesn't matter if you fall asleep. When you wake up, just pick back up where you were. I mean, this is really the reason I put the piece of art on the front. I thought it was going to take time in the sermon. I'm not going to. Um, to talk about the enemies of, of this kind of praying. That's what this painting is of. St. Jerome, he went away for like 20 years to solitude, I think, or 30 years. I can't remember how long it was. Time alone with Jesus is hard. Some of you have failed miserably over the past five weeks as we've been working our way through the Psalms. You know it. Some of you, last week I invited you to spend time every day, and some of you, I'm sure, looking back over your week, there was not a day where you did it. It's hard. The moment you commit yourself to prayer, all manner of enemy is going to strike. Boredom. You're going to go to pray and just get bored out of your mind and not know what to do. Sleep. Worries and anxieties. Temptations. Emergencies. That's what that picture is about. It's about a thousand things that are your enemy when you commit yourself to the life of prayer. But you know what you do? You just pick yourself up and here's a new week. So you screwed up last week. You didn't pray at all. Well, here's a new week. Go for it. Go for it again. Look at Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. 
Earnestly. Earnestly. I just keep going for you, God. And you know what happens? As you do this, you'll develop a taste for it. And you'll begin to long to pull away to be with your master. I commend to you a daily rhythm of prayer. And this week, will you set aside one time of open-ended prayer? We do it for our children. We do it for our friends. We do it for our customers. And we need to do it for our Lord. Let's pray.